Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. This is episode 251. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. Welcome back to the show. We have with us the often imitated, never duplicated David Fitch, professor of theology at Northern Theological Seminary, where recently they could take boiling water, throw it in the air, and it would become ice. Right? Did you see that, Fitch, on TV? I did. I did. I uh, I didn't try it, but I thought about trying it because it was so cool. Um, but yes, Northern Seminary, Chicago, and it's now a balmy 47 degrees in Chicago. And I don't like it, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's hard Much to more comfortable. It's a little dangerous. It's a little dangerous to play hockey on the on the pond, right? Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I coach hockey at a historic rink in the uh, west suburbs of Chicago. Uh, it's the YMCA rink in Elmhurst. It's where Bobby Hope had all his kids play. And so Brett Hall played there. Brett, the uh, Hall of Famer wow, NHL yeah. player yeah. who scored eight, over 800 goals. And we have several other NHL players who played there. It was soup yesterday. I mean, it was barely frozen, but we played a game on it. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. So, Fitch, you are both an evangelical. You'd still call yourself evangelical, right? That's correct. And an Anabaptist. I would like to qualify that. How would you qualify it? Well... I just like people to know that I uh, am not one of those evangelicals. If I can put it that way. <laughs> so, like you're one saying, you, didn't you just say like your new book is about us versus that, like a non us versus them faith? One of the reasons why I wrote that book is I am continually tempted to enter into an antagonism almost every moment of the day, and I just did there again, didn't I? You got me. I was slightly antagonistic. Yeah. So when. I think what I say, I, I wish I had the copy of the book. Uh, it's it's in galley form in my computer. And since I'm talking to you on my computer, I can't get a hold of it right now without severe distractions. But um, I say in the introduction, I am still an evangelical. But I'd like to clarify uh, that I am an evangelical on these terms, not the terms that are typically associated with evangelical in the broader United States culture, one of which means I'm a Republican and I vote for Donald Trump and I blah, 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 blah. I'm not that kind of an evangelical. I do think, though, that I'm an evangelical in my commitments to the authority of Scripture in the life of the church and, and the Christian. I'm an evangelical in my commitment to, and I think, conversion and discipleship uh, are important. And I believe the cross of Jesus Christ is central to our life. And I think God's called us to engage the world and, and activism for his kingdom. Those things Bebbington said are the four things. That's me. I'm an evangelical, but I really want to take it in a different direction than it's been going the last several years, maybe 40, 50 years. It does seem like there is an ongoing argument around that term. I mean, prior to the rise of the uh, evangelical right or it becoming synonymous with Republican politics, there was, yeah, I remember there being an argument, well, evangelical really points back to the faith of the Reformation, you know, the idea of those who were emphasizing a return to um, centrality of Scripture, um, centrality of the grace of God, 
those kind of things. And uh, so it, it is a term that uh, in a nomenclature certainly has been um, kicked around and debated about exactly who owns it, how big, how broad it is. I mean, Doug Padgett and I, we kind of, or Doug Padgett, we had an interesting discussion with him about that in terms of claiming it, not claiming it. Yeah, he looks at evangelical almost like an ethnic group. Like, like that's who, like, even though theologically he probably doesn't fit the general rubric. He probably wouldn't fit your rubric. Yeah, but yeah, probably wouldn't fit that rubric. But he looks at it as like, look, this is kind of who I am. It's my tribe. I can't kind of get, you know, get out of it. Some people think of evangelicalism like that, Fitch, like an ethnic group. Do you run into that? Um, well, I kind of have an appreciation for that way of thinking about it because evangelicalism, uh, I mean, my, my comrade down the hall here, Scott McKnight, um, he, he wants to look at it scripted theologically as it's, it's aligned around these basic core beliefs or ideas. Um, and then he wants to say, uh, you know, people as diverse as uh, John Stott in, in British Anglicanism or Henry New, or um, uh, Newbegin uh, in Presbyterian Orthodoxy in uh, India, as well as Jerry Falwell, as well as all these other people are all evangelicals. Well, that's not uh, the way I see it. I see it as a significant kind of history within the United States. And it just happens to coincide with Bebbington's of evangelicalism. But I, I have some affinity with that idea. I mean, what, yeah. would, would I think you, it's more of a people group than it is a belief system. But when you include Canada and Great Britain as well, in terms yes. of, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it does take different forms because of the history of the church right. in, in Britain, especially versus uh, North America. Right. Yeah, because England, it seems more erratic and less antagonistic. I mean, largely probably because a lot of those evangelicals were brought into the fold in the Church of England. So well, there was, not... there, was, there, was a, there was a silo you could be in in yeah. the Church of England. Yeah. yeah. So, Fitch, here's the – it's interesting to me. What dominates the evangelical landscape, like most of our cultural landscape, is, is Donald Trump right now. I mean, it, I mean he's just – such a kind of media phenomena phenomenon. And it, it strikes me that a, a camp that you would, I, this is an antagonism. I mean, this is just probably f- fair to say you would not put a paint yourself with a neo reformed stripe, uh, you know, but you often call yourself a neo Anabaptist, but it seems like the, a lot of the people in that gospel coalition, neo reformed crowd don't talk much about Trump as a, as opposed to the broader, massive evangelicalism out there like the kind of the kind of rank and file baptist sort of you know populist crowd so i mean do you do you see that do you think well, are you are you a strange bedfellow with with are there are the neo-reformed as non-populist as you aren't they aren't they waiting for william the of orange to come back that's true this is true <laughs> this is true um i think you're right there i think the uh, neo-reformed folk uh the gospel coalition folk uh uh, for the most part, have an ambivalent, if not a distant relationship with Trump and Republican politics. Um, but if you ask me to get, dig down a little bit deeper, I would try to t- help you understand or try to at least display why I think the church culture theology most often associated with the Gospel Coalition. And then there's a distinct difference between, say, the Neo-Reformed and the Gospel Coalition people style of reform versus the uh, Dutch Calvinist Reformed, two very different groups. And yet I see both structures there as potentially leading to 
the the align the kind of cultural alignment that leads to this kind of Trumpism. Did you follow? I mean, would you say part of that is just the Christendom stuff that 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 for uh, all the d- differences in, in those two camps that fundamentally the church world relationship is one where they're seeking to re- reform, redeem, shape the wider culture, and that sort of leads to kind of hegemonic tendencies or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I, that yeah. was a pretty I mean, good pitch there. I, that was, a, uh, I mean, I'm not. He did a good job. Yeah, there. that was like I, I feel like I was speaking fitch. I think there. that was an homage to you. Yeah. Yes. So, so, uh, so these are two different groups, and yet, and and by the way, both both of them often find my characterizations of them troublesome. Um, and you know, all I got to say is just let's just get together on a podcast and talk about it, and maybe we can clear this all up. But uh, let's take uh, Tim Keller and his uh, propensity to like James Davison Hunter. You and I had a discussion about this, Scott, recently, uh, where it, even though even though James Davison Hunter in that book from 10 years ago to change the world is not really advocating a way to change the world. It's there's there's some things that are written uh, in there that if we follow, this is what we will do. OK, so, you know, first of all. There's that whole thing about culture doesn't change through being good, pietous people, getting people saved, and, and then sending them out there. It happens through being uh, an elite in a large cultural organization. Um, and and so, um, would you agree that he says that in the first part of the Change the World, Scott? Well, because I, think, I know you and I have a I think he says that descriptively. I mean, as a kind of foil. I mean, I don't think he says exclusively that, but I think he's sort of ar- arguing that, well, look – if you look at ways that the world has been changed, it's often by um, by elites, by 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 people in power, by you know things, major cultural institutions. Now he's not advocating that that's what Christians should be doing. Like I mean, he thinks that right, right. that you should just. In fact, Over- you and you and he would sound very similar. I think at the end of the day, in your vision of the Christian life, it's sort of live it for its own sake, and and this and the any redemptive influence will spill over. But we ought not to you know, look at that consciously. So I don't think, I, I mean, I, I don't think Hunter there is, is, is sort of advocating that position. I think he's sort of saying this is kind of, it's sort of like, a, I look at that as sort of like a foil or a counter argument to mainstream evangelical sort of way of thinking right. about shaping the culture. Right. And, and so, okay. So I'm, I can buy most of that um, except the fact that, and I, I, I teach kind of church culture, church and mission over and over again at various different places, including Fuller Seminary, my own seminary, Northern Seminary. And I run into this again and again and again. And I think it's evident in, in the beloved uh, Reverend Keller's church, Redeemer, Prez. And I've, I've been, I'm Scott, Scott, come over here for just a second. Folks uh, just came into my office. The great Scott, Scott McKnight. McKnight. <laughs> here. Who is this? Um, this is Scott Jones and Bill Brewer. And what's the name? Look, New- look at this. Is really a clever studio. Oh yeah. Clever, oh, yeah. Or uh, can you give us in one sentence what you think is the most important thing you have to say to these to the world right now in one sentence? Jesus is Lord. Okay. And everything else is as as Stanley Hauerwas would say is is BS. I thought you were going to say hockey's not a real sport. <laughs> <laughs> David at one time was in the holiness tradition. 
He's completely jumped. I didn't say the actual <laughs> words, Scott. I said BS. This is an adult show. You can say whatever you want. We're not judging. It's we a always, judgment-free zone. We always warn. We always warn parents to take the children out yeah. of the room. Yeah. 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 All right. Get this guy on your podcast next time. David and, and likes you can, my shirt. It's a nice shirt, Scott. You look good. You look good. <laughs> this is evolving into chaos, and we need to get back on track here. Sorry, your hair's getting better. Uh, okay, thanks, Scott. Okay, I'm just glad to have any right now. Okay, Scott dresses a little nicer than you yeah. do there at the at Northern Seminary. He's really our, our class is in session right now, David. All right, where Bill? Where are we? Right now? <laughs> okay, we were, were talking about James Davidson you're ta- Hunter, and you were also talking James about Keller. Keller. You were talking, you were talking about, about what you thought Keller is. Keller, church, peace yeah. be upon yeah. him. <laughs> okay, I get. I get that James doesn't think we ought to go and train people to be elites and take down uh, American culture, but I have seen it over and over again that this is, in fact, the strategy uh, that people take on in terms of the neo-reformed gospel coalition kind of churches. We're going to go after the elite of culture, and we're going to get them saved and send them out to save the world by taking up residence. They're taking up their positions of power in organizations. And so now I would like to say why I think that's reinforced in the rest of the book or why that's reinforced in the rest of what neo-reformed and and or gospel coalition people say. Before I do that, I want to give you both space to like either distract me and send me into another direction or or counteract what you think I'm saying. Well, that's a mission strategy. That's that's an old mission strategy. It goes back to young life. Yeah, like young kids. life. Or I was thinking, it goes back to young life, which I was a yeah. You know, I was on staff for five years. I was thinking more. It goes back to those crazy Irish missionaries that would go and try to convert to chiefs. You know. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So it's, I mean, it has been a strategy. It's been a missional strategy. But know? I wonder also how much of that that strategy is also just functionally it also sounds like the federalist society <laughs> right, exactly yeah exactly but i wonder how much of it is just it comes out of the cultural situation of those groups like they're largely sort of white middle class mm-hmm. to upper middle class they tend to attract people that like to read books like they like to read theological texts and i mean we could argue about whether or not they're reading good texts but i mean they're they're a lot of people kind of find themselves in that scene after rejecting a less reflective fundamentalism or something. So I wonder how much of that strategy just comes from that's sort of where they find themselves. Yeah. Uh, uh, I think that it does reflect where uh, these people who are writing these things find themselves. But what about, a, what, that what that, about it as a missional strategy? Yeah. Uh, but I think it's a disastrous missional strategy. <clears throat> I think that when, so so uh, I, I want everybody who's listening, I differentiate between the Gospel Coalition and between the Dutch Calvinists. There's two different things going on there. But in the, in the world of James Davison Hunter, they kind of overlap, mainly because of Tim Keller and his role in, in both loving James Davison Hunter and his role in the Gospel Coalition. So sometimes this might be, get confused. But if you read... Um, Kuyperian thought on the Dutch Calvinist side. Or Which I say, try Jamie, to avoid. I try to avoid at all costs. Me too. Go ahead. <laughs> if you read Jamie K. Smith, what's the idea there? It, the idea there is liturgy will shape us as individuals to go out into the other five spaces in that book, uh, You Are What You Love. And that's very much the sphere idea. Here's the church. Here's the sphere of government. Here's the sphere of education. Here's the sphere of arts. Here's the sphere of, of, of uh, edu- you know, whatever. And, and we will 
we will shape you liturgically to be followers of Jesus, to go into these other places where there's a created sphere of logic and you will change the world as individuals. And I want to say this is not the way God has changed the world. If you So look at the civil rights movement. Where did it start? It started with the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee meetings and Clarence Jordan and all those other people and the John Perkins and all those little prayer meetings all over the South that disrupted Jim Crow. And then by the time Martin Luther King got to Selma and everything was already being percolated in these small groups of people where African-Americans and white people were gathering together to pray and study and be together and, and actually share economics, it disrupted the South and then came the national movement. Movement. And I think that's the way things, um, I think that's the way things change. I, I could go back to uh, Don Dayton's book, Discovering Evangelical Heritage, where it wasn't the powerful people in Princeton, I'm sorry to tell you, Scott, who changed the world. Actually, those were the people who were actually advocating for slavery. It was the revivalist movements, the Finneys, the free Methodists who were starting the abolitionist movements to break up slavery or to or to fight for women's suffrage. So I just think things start on the ground by going and being with the poor. And it, and and the, the, the last piece of the puzzle here is, I believe the gospel coalitioners and the Dutch Calvinists tend to see power in what I call a Niburian way. All power is the same. The problem is not that, that the power is not the problem, it's the wrong use of power. And therefore, we just need to get the right people in to use the power in the right way, and we'll solve our problems. And I want to say, no, that this, the way power, coercion over people, that's not the way God's going to change the world. Sure, it's used to preserve society, say, by government, but um, it is not the way God's going to redeem society. And for all these reasons, I'm a neo-Anabaptist evangelical, not an evangelical that aligns him, him or herself with the Gospel Coalition, or for that matter, the Dutch Calvinists. Uh, I okay, guess that was a lot of stuff. Yeah, but I, I guess does it have to be an either or? I mean, I guess there's a sense where I mean, I certainly have seen the corruption of kind of an elite missional strategy, whether it be with you know go after certain high school kids or having scary Bible studies with in uh, with Vice President Pence. You know, there's a number of those things that have made me nervous. But if you're a English peasant in the, in the 10th century, and uh, you find out that the Viking chieftain was converted to Christianity, and that that's changing facts on the ground, um, I think you're happy about that, uh, that you're not necessarily going to get raided and killed anymore. That, not that it totally stopped that, but it began to change that. So I, I, does it have to be it's an either kindler, or? It's a kindler, gentler pillaging. <laughs> well, anyway, but does it have to be either or? I guess there are circumstances where... Uh, you know, I think, for instance, your read of the civil rights movement, I would say, uh, you know, from my study, it's a little more complex than that. I, I agree with the grassroots stuff. Uh, and I would also, you know, argue that uh, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, the civil rights movement stalled in part, both from when it broke down on a grassroots level as well as a national level. I think I have a, well, lot, of, I have a lot of respect for John Lewis, but that display... Uh, talk about hypocrisy, the NFL, you know, you know, parading out civil rights leaders. <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh. I, it was bad enough that, you know, the game was horrible enough. That was too, that was, uh, that was important of things to come. So, so what you want to say this, Bill, what you want to say is that, that kind of corrupt use of power that Fitch is talking about is a bug in the system. And, and Fitch, you want to say it's not a bug, it's a feature. 
Like any time you have this uncritical view of power, it, it's gonna it's gonna end in this kind of totalitizing and, and domination. It's it, and you can't. It, it's sort of like clean coal, right? I mean, you can't you touch coal; it gets dirty. That's like like yeah. like the redemptive use of power for you is like clean coal, right? So, but uh, but, but isn't isn't a misuse of power present? In the ground, on the ground as well, in the grassroots levels. Um, okay, yeah. This, I mean, this is what always happens: is well, uh, we either go to the argument, power is power. Is there any avoidance of power? I I have become convinced, not only historically, and I'll you know Charles Marsh's book, Beloved Community, uh, uh, great book, in great conversation book. with John Perkins, and in, in, in the the whole, the whole outlining of it, but it's not just that. It's like, um, um, so so what happened there? When you also saw the movie Selma, probably read the book and stuff. But uh, what happened there was Martin Luther King was accused of stepping into something that was already going on, and you're making it into a national thing. What was the local thing? Remember that scene in Selma, the movie? You guys, no? Um, but I remember that. I mean, I read all the party in the water books. So I, I understand the controversy behind what you're talking about. Yeah. I didn't see the movie. Okay. Um, but, but anyways, I guess what I'm saying here is, is that's one very powerful way to read the story is that the church bubbled up from, from beneath and did these very disruptive acts. And, you know, if you've read any uh, Zizek or any Badu or any of these other uh, social philosophical theorists, you know, the, the disruption of an ideology requires an event and, 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 and then things start to roll. And are you faithful to that event? And this is what I see is happening. And I don't see the transition to Martin Luther King as a national civil rights movement as natural as necessarily a bad thing. But when uh, the whole civil rights movement started to depend upon government doing its work, John Perkins says, look, racism is a supernatural, is a, it's a demonic evil. It requires a supernatural work of God by the Holy Spirit to overcome. And so government cannot, especially in a separation of church and state like we have, cannot do the work of reconciliation on the ground. It can only will hold the peace and keep things from falling apart. And I, I, I want to differentiate how those two power systems work. The power of the presence of God at work relationally, socially, organizationally versus coercive power organizationally, relationally, sociologically. But don't you also agree it was, it was Eisenhower appointed federal judges if it hadn't been for that work? If it hadn't been for the FBI showing up in the morning, John Perkins would have been dead at the hands, you know, of uh, the Mississippi State Police, so uh, again, I, I'm I don't really disagree with you in terms of the limitations and and the fallacies of of that kind of approach. I'm just saying that I don't I don't think to say that it's you know light and dark that uh, that there's something kind of particularly pure about grassroots efforts. I think that's that I, I just you know, haven't spent a lot of time in grassroots efforts. I know that not to be the case, and also in the history of the civil rights movement, a lot of bad things happen on, and you know, a lot of, a lot of personal abuse was and misuse of power happened in yes. those grassroots movements. Yeah. So, so there is no pure church. This side of well, I'm not talking church. about. I'm not really talking about church. I'm talking. We're talking in the context of how you. I'm talking more in terms of strategy and struck. You know, what are the strategies to engage 
social change. And uh, yeah, I, I'm just I'm just a little reluctant to go either. You know, I can agree with much of your critique. I'm just a little reluctant to go the either or that you go. Yeah, and I think Fitch, you would say right that the issue is like that you. Uh, well, of course, there's no such thing as as sort of a sin free segment of the earth or anything. But but once you get involved in 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 kind of Christendom power structures, your hands become dirtier in a way just by being immersed in that kind of system, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to taking a more countercultural approach, where the kingdom community is organized around. So solidarity and submission, mutual submission, and those things. That, that of course there'll still be sin and and and, yeah. and brokenness, but but the very nature of life together is structured differently and values and has a, a, a different set of values around things like power. That that it, it really mitigates some of the worst of the stuff that 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 I guess you would say a Dutch reformed or or a gospel coalition near reform are, are kind of li- liable to. Well, and also, Dave, I, you know, I'm speaking such good fits today. You do, you know, I have a deep appreciation for the Anabaptist tradition. Was a teaching elder in a Mennonite church for a couple years, Uh, and really, uh, and also from historical perspective, the tragedy of what happened in the Reformation. You know, kind of the almost unforgivable sin. It's understandable, but also unforgivable the way they were treated. But I would also say I'm very glad the Mennonite Central Committee exists. In other words, I'm, I'm glad that. Some of that spirit of stuff is institutionalized. And again, I know the corruption that happens with institutional and, uh, you know, some of my favorite, the people I cut my teeth on, uh, kind of the, the radical, what they were, the radical evangelical left. One sees what happens over the years as that stuff is appropriated and you get invited to enough conferences and you become the token voice among certain things. You understand what happens to that voice. I mean, that's a little, little bit that's inevitable, I think. Uh, well, the corruption, that's why we have to drain the swamp. <laughs> or that's why <laughs> that's why all good reformers should be dead by 30. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so I hear, Bill, I hear you assuming that I'm against institutionalization or uh, formalizing of an organization, and I am not. Uh, I, I think the church needs recognition of of the gifted ones the elders the teaching office but it must function always related to the charismatic power of the holy spirit at work in the church once it becomes once it becomes dependent upon the office separate from the gift you know i mean there's been uh, max weber wrote about this rationalization and all that stuff then we lose we lose the 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 church and it becomes an institution run by power. So I do think it's possible to institutionalize a church and institutionalize period in, uh, in congruence with the lack of the worldly power presence. I mean, so I was in a pastor's um, we have six pastors now in our church. Actually we have four pastors and two in training and they become such better pastors than the other four of us that we are trying to step up their ordination very quickly. Okay. But the fact that we still talk about that institutionalization is not something we reject, but I'm well, just but can I just say, ordina- can I just say one thing? Ordination is theological, not, not only institutional. Did I, in, did I, why are you saying that? Well, cause you implied uh, the, the fact something. that you're talking about ordination is a is a nod to institutionalism. That's what it sounds. Oh, I'm like. trying. I'm trying to say the that 
I'm trying to say it's possible to organize in a mm-hmm. way where the integrity of the of the power of mutuality maintains as opposed to gets it'll always be corrupt it'll get corrupt every week but we will call ourselves back to the practice of mutual submission one to another under the reverence of Christ all the time but all this to say i was sitting around in this this we had a retreat for a day and a half sorting through the issues of our church and where do we go from here and the way we led in mutuality was beautiful but it is an institution uh, it, it's it's an institutional it's a it's an institution of the church this pastorate that leads and guides the rest of the church so i hope i hope you you hear that i believe the the so so what it was the it was luther that said there is the the right hand of the of uh, the the right hand of the spirit and the left hand of the sword. Is that how it goes, Bill? So you know, the which, two. The, well, the what two, are you talking about? The two kingdoms? Or what are you talking about? Yes, two, the two kingdoms. Yeah. Powers yeah. at work, the sword. Yeah. And, and what I was saying was, and I believe Luther, at least after Luther, that was, they talked a lot about, you know, the peasant revolt and everything. We've got to put these people down. We've got to preserve society. That was the sword. And the spirit, and I, I, I don't follow Luther on this because it tends to individualize, even though he didn't, uh, the power of the spirit. But there are two powers at work. And and the problem with the Lutherans is they put, and this happened, you know, the, however you interpret the German problem and the German church problem, you put God too much behind the, pre- if you mix the redemptive work of God from the preservatory work in society, you're going to you're going to be messed up and you're going to attribute to God coercive preservatory work where actually he wants to do redeemed work. And I just want to keep the two powers separate. Wow. I never thought I would hear Fitch advocate for a kind of, Two kingdom losers. <laughs> Things that yeah. happen. Wow. Yeah. I'm big not, scoop. Big scoop. Well, I would like to go back to Augustine's idea. <laughs> Big scoop. You didn't hear the new one. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Zoll, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, Stephen Rowe, and Jody Stevenson. 
If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. I, I don't want to attribute to God that too easily that preservatory institution. I want, I don't want to put that ever over the power of God at work, but the fact is there are two powers at work and sometimes the preservatory function preserves society for the work of redemption. And I'm okay with that. So the fact that the fact that we see good things happen through the power of the sword, that the government can, can do some good things is okay with me. As long as we realize it's incomplete until the redemptive work and, and the power of God's presence brings those things to completion. All right. That sounds Augustinian there. Yeah. So, okay. So this is, here's a question that I have. I'm an Augustinian ecclesial uh, theologian. I like that. Yeah. I'm into that. All right. I'm into Very that. good. And there's a big difference between, like, the, Jamie Smith has a great essay in this, and on Augustine's two cities and Luther's two kingdoms and how they're very, very different kind of understandings. Yes. But, but yes. okay, so this is one of the things I, I except, tend... Except that Luther was Dominican. He was a Luther. He was an Augustinian. Yes. Well, he was, Wait, in, he was, was in an Augustinian institution. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was an and, and actually, you know, the Reformation, in part, was an argument... About the right interpretation of Augustine. So, so yeah. What did Reinhold Niebuhr say that that after the Reformation, the Catholics took Augustine's ecclesiology and the Protestants took his soteriology? Yeah, yeah. So, so this is. <laughs> and, and, I've never heard. And both, and both, and both down. suffered for the both. And of both suffered for yeah. yeah. So, Fitch, here's something I notice in in people that tend to sort of have neo Anabaptist sort of affinities, you know, and or into Harawas and. Yoder and sometimes Alistair McIntyre. Like, I think a lot of times folks come from a conservative evangelical background, right? Where there's a kind of positive, positivist view of inerrancy, right? That really, you know, that it seems like the, 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 the main doctrine uh, is not sort of Christology or Trinity or pneumatology, but it's, you know, it's like the Westminster Confession. The first article is the, is the Bible and biblical authority, right? And, and then oftentimes you have evangelicals kind of outgrow that. But then instead of a sort of positivist Bible as the anthropological anchor, that, that a kind of muscular ecclesiology takes the place of that positive, of that, of that whole, right? So, it, it, so you kind of have a lot of reflection on instead of the, the inerrant Bible, that's the thing that is the, the anchor that shows how the faith makes sense. It, you come up with a sort of positivist church that sort of takes the place of it. And, and, and then you wind up with another kind of power struggle and an antagonism because of a sort of ecclesiology that maybe is is too explicit or too kind of self-reflective. Maybe you don't notice that. Uh, well, uh, so you take, you, you give, you spoke so eloquently there, I got kind of lost in the amazement of it all. It happens uh, a lot. Scott. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, you, uh, you putting the authority that you did put, uh, I would say rather naively in this kind of an errant hermeneutic of the Bible. Now you transfer it to the church and um, yeah, I, uh, so, so the actual living out of, of uh, a life requires a social body, but within the social body are, are the gifts of the Holy spirit. So I often people say to me, uh, dude, you're, you're lowering the Bible. And you're not giving it enough authority. And I go, no, I'm actually giving it more authority. Now the Bible takes authority within the church. It's a social, sociological authority. 
It is an authority over a people, but it requires uh, gifted ones to interpret the Bible. And within this method of interpreting, there are mutual people interpreting one to another. And so there's usurping or authoritarian enforcing of an interpretation. We are gathering together. And so so when we had a women in ministry uh, come up in our latest elder uh, development process at our church, we spent eight weeks going through the texts and mutually submitting to one another. And it was a beautiful uh, a way of seeing the scripture take on life and and lead us and guide us through this issue. And by the way, there were still a lot of 30 people that were regularly meeting over this issue. There were two or three that weren't convinced that women should be pastors, but they were so confident in the process and what they had seen the Holy Spirit do and trusting one another that they went with the communal um, um you know, a, a co- coalescence around women in ministry. So you see how you see how I'm saying, yeah. But how else? What other way is there to do this? I don't know any other way than to give, than to make the church the place from which God's going to work out the truth and give witness to the world. You got a better right? You have you have you uh, reformed people got a better idea? Actually, I think you're probably more in agreement on this idea than than. Than most people are. I would say. I would want to say. I would want to say it's more Christ and Spirit, that, and and that that the, that the church bears witness and participates in that, like by by receptivity and by grace. But it's not something that, uh, that again. That this is always, uh, you know, it's kind of Bart's sense that God gives Himself without giving Himself away, right? So that. So that you know, he went, Bart wants to say yes. God is revealer, revelation, and revealedness. So that even in his object, even his, his his making himself objective in the event of revelation, he's still the Lord of the objectivity. Yeah, yeah, like he's the yeah. subject and object there, and that we that our subjectivity is is by grace and participation. So I would just want to, yeah, I think I, I wouldn't totally disagree. I would just put accents in really different places. I think. Yeah, I would. I would I actually have strong sympathies. So what you say, because I think historically that's kind of that's kind of what the church has done. It does. It has it always has an intuition towards that, and yes, it, it always also had the. And, but the gravity of institutionalization, whether it be um, the magisterium or the local conference, whatever you ultimately become accountable yes. to, it's it that's an inevitable yes. part of it as well. Uh, I do like the. I do like your. I do like. The, there's something. Uh, I mean, this would be a whole other discussion, but a Christocentric. Uh, I, I, my my sympathies would be Christocentric as well, partially because of, uh, you know, I've also <laughs> I also spent the you know early '80s seeing seeing the result of uh, of community uh, of one side of a community driven uh, pneumatology. So I, I would say, yeah, but I, again, I think each. Um, you know, we are a Trinitarian faith, so I think the the I think the way a particular emphasis on one particular person, the Trinity, is can be both a corrective and a distortion. So I think having that having a Trinitarian ecclesiology is probably something that's it's everyone needs because I think a lot of a lot, I remember uh, John Iverson. Uh, gosh, there's a name in the past. His father wrote the the, the hymn. Spirit of the Living God. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But he was an Orthodox Presbyterian church planner and did most of his work in urban settings. And uh, you know, matter of fact, I he 
I was somewhere where he was giving a talk, and while he was giving a talk, Eldridge Cleaver called him. He was trying to come around. It was pretty wild. Okay. Well, so at any rate, but one thing he always said, and this was back, you know, in the midst of the of the of the charismatic. I mean, you know, the, the, probably the part when the charismatic movement was starting to create denominations. You know, when things were kind of it was moving out of being prayer and praise movements to churches and you know split ups and everything. Yes. And he said, you yes. know. I come from the Reformed tradition, and we have miles and miles and miles of track, doctrinal track that circles the globe. We just don't have any engines to run on them. And he goes, he called the charismatics the happy people. Now he says the happy people, they got all kinds of engines. They've got big engines, steam engines. They've got the coolest engines. They just don't have any track to run the trains on. And I actually thought that was kind of an interesting, uh, basic, but pretty good insight of what my own experience has been um, and, and sometimes that plays between, you know, fundamentalist, charismatic, um, you know, Bible Baptist versus uh, more progressive evangelicals, mainline folks with non-denominational. But it still seems there's that, that how do we bring together both an appreciation for the depth of the tradition in the biblical faith as given to us by the community of faith and the, the ongoing living work of the spirit of Christ in our midst. So I think that that tensions, that's just another way of talking about the, I think the tension that we live in of being people of the spirit, but yes. people that live uh, in the corporate corporal world. Yeah. yeah and Fitch, I don't want to, yeah. I want to know like what you would do with like, I'm thinking of, of theologians who would consciously be aware of what you would identify as the Christendom problem and have reacted to it and yet wouldn't be self-styled, Anabaptist, or you wouldn't be able to put them in that category. I'm thinking of, of Karl Barth, von Balthasar, Robert Jensen, Leslie Newbigin. I mean, these are people that are are, are quite conscious about the Christendom problem, that the chain, that you know, the kind of sometimes sloppy relationships with power in the dominant culture, and yet, and so want us do think about the church being in the world differently than in a kind of Constantinian situation. And yet they don't wind up looking or, or talking or, or, or sounding like Anabaptists. Like, do you, like, what, what, what is your relationship to thinkers like that? I think Leslie Newbigin sounds a lot like an Anabaptist. When I first was reading him, I didn't know he was a Presbyterian and I was He's actually United Reformed, out. United Reformed, and then Church of South India. Oh, United, United Reformed, Presbyterian, they're all the same to, to us over here. <laughs> They all look like just kidding. They all look, what I, do you mean, you people? <laughs> that's right. Boy, you just I uh you just I, you just threw out a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that exactly, happened in India, man. Exactly. Go ahead. Sorry, man. Sorry. I repent and I I apologize. Um I uh you know, one of my mentors, Stanley Harawas, deeply indebted to Carl Bart, as I and I've always been interested to read Bart. And all the things that went on with the German church problem and confessional church and all that. And I've always wondered, I, I, I've always wondered if what went wrong there was they didn't have a good enough ecclesiology in, in the German church. They, okay, and I know you two probably even know more about this than I do. But the Mormon they, they, they didn't have any guns either. <laughs> That's part of the problem, too. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. Come on. I mean, I know Bart wasn't part of the Lutheran church, but Bonhoeffer wasn't. And, 
And what if what if they would have had a church that could have gotten together? You know, supposedly there were what seventeen million German Lutherans. I don't know how many pastors that works out to be, but let's just say twenty seven thousand pastors could all gotten together and discern what Scripture teaching us. And 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 so that we do not go Heil Hitler. I wonder if the war would have been over right you, there and I then. Mean, but you do know kind of ecclesiology. But you do know who was in charge. One of the leaders of the Christians for Peace movement in the 30s it was a worldwide international movement for peace. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Who was, was in the, charge of what? Uh, was one of the young leaders. There was a massive. Was, there was a massive movement in the 30s that was ecumenical, saying you know the Christian peace movement. One of the, their mottos was. Uh, if we just would never, if Christians would agree for no Christian to shoot another, kill another Christian, the world will be safe. So that was a very active and very. I popular, like that. I, I like yeah, that proposal. That, it was, and it was. You t- think Jerry Falwell Jr. would sign? And guess what? It it had no power to stop, to stop. What but was Bill, coming. where was the ecclesiology of the peace movement? Well, it was in, it was that community. It was cross. It was cross denominational, cross traditions. No, 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 no. The difference between a Protestant and an Anabaptist is to have an ecclesiology, you have to have a functioning body that will discern issues on the ground. Where was that ecclesiology? Evidently, the Barman Declaration was a confession, but they didn't have an ecclesiology to determine or discern what are we going to do here in Munich or what are we going to do here in Heidelberg, what are we going to do to, are we going to say Heil Hitler? Are we going to reject the Aryan clause or whatever? And, and I, and to me, that's a question of ecclesiology to me. Okay. I'm just saying this for a fact. I I'm, I'm not going to defend this in a paper at AAR, but to me, Karl Barth uh, needed the Anabaptist thing and he didn't have it. Karl Barth needed to be a better Anabaptist. How about that for Princeton? Do you you think the Anabaptist, you could, (laughs) Do you think the Anabaptists would have stopped Hitler? If you had uh, 17 million of them, yes. <laughs> if you have 17 million of anything, you could do a lot. I mean, no, I think that, like, I would want to say. I would, I would just say 17 million Anabaptists would look a lot like the Polish cavalry against the tanks uh, on the west, on the eastern front. But go ahead. I, I think that. Lack of imagination, lack of imagination, folks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say that. The problem there with the German Christians is is not so much like ecclesiology. In this, well, okay, you can say it's ecclesiological if you want, but I would say that it, it's part of it. It's just it, it's kind of it's the Christendom problem. It's nominal Christianity, right? So that so that a lot of the, the functional membership of a kind of state church like that are people that are not very formed by a Christian imagination. So, but I, but the question is then: Would you need an Anabaptist kind of setup? In a in a post Christian kind of like like Leslie Newbigin when he designs the Church of South India a, a very explicitly non kind of Christendom thing it's I mean, a, a, a distinct minority he does not set up an Anabaptist church he said it looks a lot more like Anglicanism right but but there is a discerning body there and and there is so so I mean I I just don't know that I mean for you sometimes I hear like the Christendom critique and and then which I agree with but then the only thing that can that they can overcome that problem is a kind of neo Anabaptist understanding. I, I just, I, I mean, I don't have a problem that that's one solution, but I, I think there are others that that are not in that camp or tradition that that still are critical of cultural compromise with power and things like that, and yet don't have such a sort of contrast um, community self conception. Yeah, and I, by the yeah. way, just just for historical purposes. 
I mean, the part of the problem in the 30s, too, was the German church was so weak. And here's an argument on your behalf. Part of the reason it was so weak was because of how the church was so behind the war effort in World War One, and people came away so disillusioned. And as what Dietrich Bonhoeffer's brother said to him when he told him he was going to be a minister, he says, why would you want to be a part of that petty bourgeois institution? So I, I think I think you could argue that the Christians— I, I would consider being petty bourgeois stuff up. I'm aspiring. <laughs> I'm aspiring to be petty bourgeois, man. That'd be great. If well, I could go from if I could go from Trader Joe's to Whole Foods, that'd I be think awesome. I, I think I'm with the petty proletarians yeah. right now. <laughs> but no, so I think. Although I do have a hybrid car now, so I can virtue oh, signal. Wait, I, mean, no, I, I can I can judge yeah, everybody you, you, that does no, it. Yeah, you, you're in a, you're in a different income level than that. But um, I will say, um, no, the Christendom argument does work. I think in part about what happens in World War One, and so you could say that you had a very spiritually and culturally marginalized church that that's part of the, that's probably the chief reason it had little impact yeah yeah i, yeah, concur. I concur and i and i just have to be careful when i say uh, anabaptist ecclesiology or neo anabaptist ecclesiology i mean most people would would look at the churches that i've started here at life of the vine and the one i'm in now at peace of christ and you'd say my goodness it looks like an anglican church in terms of liturgy and stuff so i don't get, uh, but, but the fact is we discern, 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 and we do not, uh, and we're small enough that we know each other and we're engaging the issues of racism in our town and other things going on in our town. This next six weeks, we're engaging sexuality and gender. So, you know, uh, we're not just getting an edict from some uh, person in Colorado Springs telling us what to do or say. We're actually discerning these issues. If we had a discerning church, the question is, would would all those Lutherans have gone Heil Hitler? I don't think they would have. I think it would have been much harder at least. And who knows what would have happened if we would have made space for the Holy Spirit to work. Yeah, but one of my problems is, and again, there's a lot of really good devout Christians who uh, say their prayers are in Bible studies who are saying Heil Trump. Uh, so, I, I mean, again, I, 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 you know, for every cynical— well, he's making America great again. For every, I mean, for, for every cynical, you know, Jerry Falwell Jr. Um, or, you know, fill in another blank— uh, there, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, I know them. I come from, I grew up in those areas and uh, I have friends who pastor in those areas. So I, I you know, I, I'm not as optimistic about what would have happened on the ground. Um, but that's, you know, who knows? One, one question. Are you, how, 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 how homogeneous is your fellowship? That's one question I would, I'm kind of curious about. In terms of uh, ethnicity or socioeconomics? Or just, you know, our general life. Kind of like you got you. MAGA hats. You got MAGA hats in the congregation. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just, I'm just curious because I, I wonder how, Wait. how this, is it a function? Part of the function of discernment group. And again, I, I'm basically functioning to, I'm, I'm passionate to congregations that are more like your framework than a Christendom model. You know, they're, they're communities of faith. They're families. kind of. Uh, I mean, I understand theoretically. You know, one body, many parts, the spirit brings us together. But on a practical level, how much are you all alike? Well, is there anybody that hates um, hockey? It's kind of hard to like <laughs> make a generalized statement. Uh, I will just say there were. Oh, hallelujah. There's hallelujah. a lot of people who, who don't even know what a hockey puck is in our church, Scott. But, uh, and a matter of fact, the majority. The majority. But I, I would say. Uh, the, the, now, do you the have, women in ministry guys, issue was brought women up in by three right people now? who had significant problems with it. Okay, and so, then so we so had people one who person, had problems with with 
if you're on your out on the ground. People are having yes. problems of how you're running your church right now. So we discerned. Uh, well, we went to the elder level and it was brought up again. And so a simmering that'd be a great, discontent that'd be a great came to the title for a novel. We simmering discontent. We had so to so I guess I'm just trying to understand because you have, you have women elders to, and some people in your congregation mm-hmm. question whether or not there should be women elders. Is that, is that my understanding? Uh, no, no, we were in the process of, okay. of selecting elders for the, this is the church. So plan, there, so so there are not the first been any time women. We were doing elders. And so we're selecting women elders. And so we have women. Yeah, there had not been women elders. And so there are three people who objected. And by the way, there was there was a person who left our congregation. I respect her, uh, but she left because she felt that this issue should not even be entertained again, that that to entertain it is to uh, uh, be unjust to the women in ministry and leadership. So there was all sorts of things going on here that needed to be addressed. Um, we don't have a really, I mean, we have, we have some people in our congregation who three years ago did not have homes. They were living without homes and now they're significant part of our congregation. So we have, you know, it's, it's a young congregation. You'd probably walk in and say, well, there's only a few minorities here and there's, it's mostly white people, but it's, it's, there's some diversity and we're pushing for more. So okay, no, I was just, I was just kind of, that was more. I wasn't trying to make a point. I'm curious now, I, because it's interesting. We're dealing with this issue in our classes because most of us felt the women's issue was settled. But we have a church plant that's coming in right now that uh, uh, our complementarian. Do you think the woman who left because it was she felt it was unjust to even bring it up? Do you think her point was valid? Um, I wish she would have felt. Um, patient enough or comfortable enough to be able to voice that in the first meeting. Okay. And I was, and, she, voted, uh, she voted with her feet before she was part of the process. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's a, it's a, I maybe sometime we can exchange um, some emails about that because I'm um, yeah. How do you handle this? It's kind of an interesting thing because I, it's not been an well, issue. This, I've, I've this, always been in groups that this was a settled issue. So go ahead. So this, this book, book the, for our listeners, he's holding up the church of us versus them. Versus them. Uh, freedom from a faith that uh, feeds on making enemies. It's coming out in, in about June. Uh, but uh, in there, I talk about how the Bible, since we're talking so much about the Bible in this whole conversation, the Bible can become an ideological object. Absolutely. And I talk about the various. I agree. Ways. Yeah. So that. So that now we're not actually discerning what the Bible says and how we are to be faithful to extending the grand story of God uh, in, in Scripture to today. We're actually using it as a object. It actually, uh, we're, we're not even using it skillfully. We say words like, well, this is biblical. And then when we actually say what's biblical about it, we haven't really got anything beneath it to back up why our position is biblical. And so often we never get to opening space for the presence of God to mutually submit and listen to the teacher in our midst, listen to the pastor, listen to the apostle, listen to all the and work things out under what under the authority and extending the authority of scripture into the existing issue we're discerning. And I talk in this book about 
all the ways the Bible becomes a divider of us versus them in Christendom culture, because we're so used to doing Christendom modes of using the Bible. And God's calling us to now shape communities out of mutuality, listening to the gifts and studying the Bible together, reading the Bible together. That's the kind of thing I'm pushing for in the Anabaptist, neo-Anabaptist evangelical movement. So in neo-Anabaptism, you drop out the ban then, the ban that's part of a core part of, you know, no, I'm I'm, I'm, some level of being serious because part of, you know, the part of Anabaptism was we are a believer's church. Is the band like the wall? If you don't have the band, it doesn't work. <laughs> so you don't I, have the wall. I there's mean, no security. No, I, I am. I mean, I'm, that was, that was, I mean, that was the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, what is it? I, I can't remember the name. The first Anabaptist confessional statement. Uh, the band is a central part of that. And, and Minno Simmons. Was that the Schleifheim confessional? There we are. There it is. Yeah. Um, Okay, yeah. What, what, what are you saying about the bands now? So I'm saying, are you saying we're getting rid of them. Well, Neo Anabaptist doesn't have it. Then. That no, idea. that's entirely not true. The the bands are are in the process of reconciliation, which is at the core of what it means to be a community. And so it would have been um, ideal if this woman, whom I respect, uh, went to the person, maybe me, who said, "Let's open this up for discussion," and say, "You have." sinned against me, or I feel you have wronged me, or I feel you've done some wrong to this church. And we would have listened to each other, submitted to one another, heard each other's um, issues under the Lordship of Christ. And if we didn't come to an agreement, we would go and invite a third. If we didn't come to agreement, we'd invite a fourth. And if we didn't come to an agreement, we would go before the whole body. That kind of that kind of discipline, that practice of reconciliation our church is saturated with it, and it just changes everything. It changes our marriages. It changes the way we do church. It changes the way we engage in the zoning committee at town hall when they do something bad against one of our brothers or sisters. It really does change everything. It's central to what it means to be a community. And scripture is part of that discernment process often. But you have to be willing to excommunicate a member if you're going to have it. Uh, if it gets to that, yes. Okay, that's what I'm asking. I would want a T-shirt. I was banned by a neo-anabaptist. Like I, would wear, I would wear that with pride. Do you think that Fitch? Do, do, do you think? No, that, you would just need every group that has banned. Exactly, you. exactly. Fitch, do you think like uh, one of the things that I find so typical of anabaptist of evangelicalism is like the four views books, right? And they publish them like every couple of years. They just get new authors because there's that antagonistic like well, I, I got. I, I, there's few, four views on every issue, and I, I got to figure out which one's the right one, right? And then, you know, and so, I mean, is that, I mean, is that some of the stuff you're concerned about? That kind of built-in stuff in, in evangelicalism that's always sort of anxious about the right issue, the right side, the right eschatology, the right view on justification, all this stuff. That sort of is, is the antagonism sort of built into the? Is it a feature of the system? Wait a minute, he's smiling. He must have written one of those books. <laughs> <laughs> no, see this book, Preaching Romans: Four Perspectives. By yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Jason Michelli's in that book, it. I think. Yeah, he just gave it to me, and it's just another example of what you're talking about. Which, by the way, I don't think is a problem. I don't think. I think. I think. Uh, as in this um, women's discussion that we've been highlighting the last 20 minutes, uh, there were different views. You might even say there were four views on the subject and listening to one another, listening to scripture, reading scripture, it it enhanced the the discussion. I believe if the complementarians and the egalitarians would listen to each other and submit to one another, actually 
something very positive would come from it uh, because there's two different social dynamics they're referring to. And I don't think either one does a good job addressing the other person. So I, I, I do think having them in the room, mutually submitting Matthew 18, all that stuff would really do some good. I've actually written an article about that, uh, which uh, if your listeners want, just email me and I'll send it to you. <clears throat> so Fitch likes the four views books. All right, there we go. We got Fitch. He likes the Lutheran two kingdoms and he likes the Zondervan four views books. Two things I didn't think Fitch would say today. <laughs> So uh, are there any uh, driving conclusions that we've come to in this uh, last hour together? Any, any things that, hey, let, let me put it this way. Have you guys changed your mind? Are you, are you going Anabaptist on me? Is that happening at all in your lives right now as a result of this tower together? I I don't think so. I don't think so. I've been there, been there, done that, and I have a deep appreciation. I went to an Anabaptist college. Messiah College. Emmanuel? Messiah. Oh, Messiah? Yeah. yeah. So, no, I, I, have, I have a deep appreciation, uh, deep, deep appreciation for the tradition, and uh, certainly they fed me. Um, yeah, it's not, not my tribe. Fitch, I, mean, I want to ask you one last question, like, because I hear you extol the virtues of N.T. Wright a lot. and I mean, it's someone who I like a lot, too. I think he's a yeah. very uh, gifted exegete and, and a great theological I, I, reader of Scripture. Although how he writes a book every other month. He's insane, <laughs> man. The guy's busy. But he's, here's a guy that I, I know a lot of people who are sort of who have some of your own affinities and concerns like him as well. And that guy loves the establishment church. That guy... When he was a bishop, he used to talk about how grateful he was to be in the House of Lords and to be able to have a public witness. I mean, like, do you think he just takes crazy pills every once in a while when he says stuff like that? No, no. Uh, you know, you know, I've learned a lot from John Milbank, but his his ecclesiology sucks. John Milbank <laughs> writes. Learned a lot. John John Milbank's books read as if they're a bad English translation, yes. but English is his first language. <laughs> no, no, no. He might. One of his colleagues who remained nameless okay. said, "I haven't decided if John is brilliant or insane." Yeah, I've read. I've read Dallas Willard. I loved. You know, I loved him when he was alive. I love him now. I've learned so much. But the ecclesiology of Dallas Willard is basically still stuck somewhere in Southern Baptist world, in my opinion. Um, who else? I mean, N.T. Wright's an Anglican and, uh, you know, his ecclesiology is, is, is not all his, his, like Oliver O'Donovan, the ecclesiology settled for those two guys, but man, what they do and how they say it and the insights they have, uh, I could not have gotten this far without N.T. Wright. And so I don't really have a problem with that. Um, I, I find a lot of people assume an ecclesiology because they never had to deal with it because it was always there. Maybe they, had a, maybe they got paid all their lives and have a pension. They don't have to worry about anything. Okay, uh, so be it. But yet it freed them to do all this good work that contributes to. Uh, so it's like in Ghostbusters calls. when they hire the fourth Ghostbuster and says, do you believe in extraterrestrials, ghosts? And he goes, lady, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I believe in anything you say. <laughs> Maybe it's that. Maybe it's just you know. Once you get the health plan and the pension, you, your 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 beliefs become more malleable. But couldn't it be if we talk about ecclesiology? Could it be if we talk about ecclesiology? If we talk about ecclesiology with a capital E, we may all be talking about works of fiction a bit. Well, yeah, I think that the hardest thing about contemporary ecclesiology, if you're if you're thinking about Catholic Christianity, is if you are Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. 
the organism and the organization are the same thing. Right. And right. if you're a Southern Baptist, like the Dallas Willard sort of thing, the organization and the organism are two different things. But if you're neither of yep. those, it, be, it and you think that there's a sort of organic spirit creature right. and also this thing that's institutional and, 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 and you can't quite equate the two, but you can't either pull them apart, then it becomes harder to talk about what the church is in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's very, that's very true. Well, I think what we, I thought we had, I think we had a a very interesting conversation. That's what I think today accomplished. Yes. Me too. I learned. I learned. Yeah. So I enjoyed. I learned. Yeah. I learned. I learned. Great. And when does the book come out? I always learn from you two guys, by the way. Thank you. We're humbled by that. We're humbled by that. We are. I am. So is Bill. When does your book come out? The Church of Us versus Them is coming out June 2019. Who's the publisher? Um, Brazos. And if anybody would like galleys, I have permission to give out galleys. Just email me. But you must promise to put a review on Amazon. Could be a one-line review or two lines. You don't even have to be nice. Just any review on Amazon. And then I send out a free copy. I only have 50 to send out, by the way. Then I send you out a free copy once I see the review. So anybody interested in that, just email me. All right. Very All good. Right. Looking forward to it. We, I think we'll have a conver- we should have a conversation with you after the book. Yeah, after we read the book. All right. We can be us. All right, you can guys, be them. I love you, man. We'll see you next time in, uh, in podcast world. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you very Mitch. much, Dave. God bless. We'll see you. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.